Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Uh, today we've got a very interesting guest. I know I always say that, but uh, this time it's 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 really true. true. This time it's super true. It's uh, we've got um, Volodymyr Artyuk, who is a postdoc at the University of Oxford, um, currently living in Romania, but he's from Ukraine um, and has been involved with you know uh, research of Ukraine and the Ukrainian left for many years, and he's gonna. Uh, he told us about, you know, gave us a state of the uh, war over there from his perspective and, um, you know, the, the, the root causes of it and, you know, the errors that many in the American and even international left have, have made in looking at this thing. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's a real detailed uh, analysis of military, political, economic, um, state of play and, uh, you know, historical and contemporary um, understandings of what's going on that I think will really inform um, the conversation on this and, and, and be quite, uh, quite illuminating for people. It's, I think it's, it's very helpful um, both to see, you know, what led to this and, and, you know, where, where the left, uh, how, how the left should think about it and, and where, where it might go from here. But, but before we get to that, we got to say that the podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect. So if you subscribe to our Patreon at $10 a month, you'll get a free digital subscription to the magazine and a discounted print subscription, as well as all our bonus episodes. $5 a month is bonus episodes only, um, or you can just enjoy the free ones. Appreciate listening, everybody. Yeah. So... Let's stop messing around and get to our interview with <laughs> Volodymyr right now. Volodymyr, um, can you start us off? First of all, thanks for coming on the show. Can you start us off by giving us just a, a state of of the war at the moment? You know, there is this big offensive um, in around Kherson and uh, up in the northeast. Um, and, you know, Russia is at least on the back foot. Putin says he's going to hold some quote unquote referendums in the occupied territories about joining Russia, I guess. Uh, so, so what's, what's been going on over the last like month? Uh, yeah. Thank you for uh, having me, Ryan and Alexios. Uh, uh, we've reached uh, in, uh, over the last, uh, last month, that's uh, roughly half a year into the war. We started on February 24th. Uh, we had some sort of a breaking point uh, when uh, U- Ukraine launched and successfully executed the counteroffensive, which has been in preparation for quite a while. And the rumors had it that it would be an offensive in the south of the country, in Kherson uh, Oblast, uh, which is uh, which is close to the Black Sea, but in fact, what happened was uh, the recapturing of a significant part of the territory in the east of the country near uh, Kharkiv Oblast. It's uh, bordering on Russia proper, uh, and uh, the territory that has been recaptured was uh, roughly the size of. 
I don't know what to compare it. Uh, probably Cyprus. Uh, so uh, some some kind harsh. of uh, mm, small European country. Let's put it this way. So and it was a very fast uh, paced offensive uh, with. Uh, Generally, with Russian troops leaving, uh, leaving, retreating, and leaving lots of equipment, uh, lots of weapons and munitions uh, behind, and generally it it was considered uh, a spectacular and painful, ideologically painful defeat for for the Russian army. And probably a, an, a, an unexpected win uh, for the Ukrainian side. And uh, that caused uh, an uproar in the radical, uh, among the Russian nationalist radicals who are, uh, who are gaining influence in, in, in Russian media and in Kremlin. And they were calling for general mobilization for uh, more drastic uh, measures against Ukraine, sometimes uh, using an uh, overtly genocidal language. And uh, what we see today, basically what we see over the last 24 hours was the, was Russia's Kremlin's response, response to this, uh, to this de- military and the ideological debacle. Since yesterday, we've been hearing uh, some noise from the lower-ranking, uh, uh, let's call them, the yeah, officials in the occupied territories, uh, appoint, uh, self-appointed officials, who were saying that they that they want a referendum, uh, and today. Uh, we see that uh, all the four uh, areas, all the four regions that are uh, currently occupied by Russia, had adopted as ad- have adopted uh, appeals to uh, to to uh, plans to hold a referendum. This this are, th- these referenda are going to happen over this weekend. In parallel, Russian parliament, the lower uh, chamber of the Russian Parliament has passed amendments to the criminal law that introduces introduce harsh punishment uh, for uh, all sorts of military crimes uh, during uh, the state of emergency, the, the, the martial law, and in the context of uh, military operations. So uh, the Russian legal system is is preparing uh, for uh, uh, for something like martial law and mobilization. Uh, in addition to that, we hear in what we hear in Russian uh, propaganda shows and in Russian media is is something very alarming. Uh, these are. Uh, threats of, yeah, essentially threats of nuclear response in, in case, uh, Ukraine and NATO, which they don't make a difference between those two, uh, attack Russian territories proper. And we uh, now know that probably over the next week, 
Russia will include new territories into itself. So this is uh, this is this is a response. Uh, this is a large. This is a, a, a very significant escalation as a response to this uh, debacle in 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 Kherson. Sorry, in in Kharkov. And the consequences are unclear to me. Uh, it's something that has uh, that many experts considered mm, useless for uh, in the battlefield. Uh, this mass mobilization, uh, the uh, the nominal legal inclusion, well, illegal but kind of legalistic inclusion of the uh, occupied territories in, into in, into Russia. They don't make a lot of sense uh, in 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 the short run in in the battlefield, so they appear to be uh, quite quite counterproductive at this point. But probably they are aimed at uh, longer uh, for a longer perspective. I mean, it seems like the um, Russian response it sort of smacks of desperation, um, you know, and desperate people can be dangerous but you know they that there was this expectation that ukraine was just a total pushover that they're going to cruise right into kiev and uh just topple the government install some sort of puppet and that would be that would just be a couple of days and instead they got you know held back and then defeated around kiev and now suffer just like a sweeping like almost a you know a a a tactical speaking route achieved with like total surprise almost and the russian forces seem like quite demilitarized and are just hemorrhaging equipment and whatnot um do you think that you know what's your your analysis of the state of the russian strength like like how much more can they mobilize realistically that that could actually be put on the on the battlefield as you say uh Thank you, Ryan, for a good good summary, actually, of of the of the situation. Uh, I'm not a military expert, so uh, but I watch this closely, and I can summarize what I've been following uh, and what I consider the most kind of reliable analysis of this of of, of the state of the military of the mili- of both militaries. I think what you pointed out uh, the Kind of recurring pattern of, 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 of the, of Russian failures. First near, uh, Kiev, uh, north of Kiev, uh, then in actually Crimea and around it, uh, when, uh, they had to retreat uh, from, uh, the Snake Island. Then, uh, they allowed strikes against military targets in Crimea itself, strikes or uh, diversion operations in Crimea itself. And now, lately, uh, they have suffered this defeat in, in Kharkiv. It, it's, this pattern tells something about the lack of coordination uh, in, in the chain of command or the dysfunctionality in the chain of command, with which many experts point out to that. It's very rigid that uh, commander of uh, local units lack initiative, uh, as opposed to the Ukrainian army. Uh, it's also is a sign of uh, 
the thinning of the of the Russian uh, army, lack of um, depth of uh, of the of their positions, uh, lack of motivation of the Russian soldiers. Logistical problems that never disappeared, that were the major, the main cause of the, the defeat north of Kiev and that never disappeared since then. And this problem, they tried to patch up all of these problems with recruiting volunteers, recently using private military companies and over the last weeks there are the news uh, appeared of recruiting uh, criminals um, from the jails uh, all across Russia. So these definitely have been dire uh, measures to patch up uh, Russian uh, lines, Russian ranks of the Russian army. And uh, this preparation for the mobilization on larger scale seem to be seem to be uh, a sort of uh, a classical solution to what what you would do in in a proper war uh, if you see that that you're losing but mobilization itself it's not a magic wand it's not a it's not it's not a miracle you need to train uh, the recruits uh, you need to supply them with uh, clothes and and food and and, and whatever and logistics uh, as we've seen is not the strength of the Russian army so experts predict that the mobilization at first will not have any impact and probably even have negative impact on the battlefield because some of the officers will have to be withdrawn from the front line or from the second uh, second line of defense uh, to train the, the recruits so in the short term, we probably will not see any any major changes. Uh, but in the in in the in the time span of four, three to six months, that it probably will make a difference. And by that time, Ukraine will also uh, uh, will also take appropriate measures, I think, to match uh, to match this increase in forces. Uh, what remains, um, what remains more concerning than all of this is the kind of light, light way, um, um, unconsiderate use of escalatory rhetoric about the nuclear strikes, which, uh, can be used either uh, on the tactical level or on strategic level, we probably are not talking about strategic nuclear rounds as of now, but the talk of tactical nuclear weapons have been have been already there since the start of the war. Uh, experts say that they won't have uh, that they will, will mostly be used for psychological purposes. They won't have significant or the size of impact on the battlefield because Ukraine is is, is a huge country country and there isn't mm, it's not clear what how, what what would you achieve if you use uh, this kind of tactical nu- nuclear weapons except for uh, except for uh, psychological effect 
but if we take into consideration the period, the winter period in which uh, European countries and, uh, are entering with the increasing inflation and rising uh, prices uh, of heating and electricity, probably this psychological impact combined with the, the economic difficulties will influence uh, the support for Ukraine. And that could be uh, one of the calculations. Right. It's, it strikes me that um, Putin is so delusional. Even even six months ago, I, I read some of your work in, in interviews you did. Um, at the time, you, you thought it was inevitable that Russia would take over Ukraine piece by piece. Uh, and I, I wonder first if you still think that because so much has changed. But even then, when when you despaired of that result, you did not think that the Ukrainians would permit a puppet government installed by Putin. That would not work at all, um, even then. So, so maybe now with the state of things and, and how, as you say, Ukrainians who are even more uh, pro-Russia have changed their attitudes and become more Ukrainian in their uh, nationalism. Um, how in the world could Putin ever think that the goal of essentially making integrated into Russia, the Ukrainian territory and people, uh, it, it seems even more delusional now. He can't possibly believe that. What what is what is your thinking now compared to back then on, on these issues? Uh, well, un unfortunately, I still think that um, in the war of, the, of this scale and of these stakes for Russia, the only the, the only way forward that would pay off would actually occupation of as much uh, as much Ukrainian territory as possible. Uh, of course, it will. You, you, Russian forces have not been greeted in uh, Kherson or in Zaporizhia oblasts with with flowers. Uh, there was a mass uh, emigration, a mass uh, evacuation of people from this uh, from these areas. Uh, those who remained uh, have have been under heavy-handed repressions, uh, were put in jail uh, and and tortured and so on. So uh, the the occupation is 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 quite um, is quite vicious in 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 this respect, and uh, it doesn't. Uh, rely on people's willingness uh, to to cooperate uh, or to um, uh, give legitimacy to to these puppet governments it uh, Russian occupation there relies purely on on coercion uh, purely on the on the use of uh, overwhelming power and I think they can they can pull it off they can pull it off as long as they have uh, the necessary, uh, manpower for this and the necessary tools and, uh, and, and they do have. I think uh, the outcome of the protests in Belarus in 2020 and the outcome of the events in Kazakhstan in, in this, in the beginning of this year, they showed that violence works, that violence works in controlling even the reluctant, even the extremely reluctant population. Uh, provided that you are escalating the violence all the time, uh, that you don't allow the reluctant population to 
um, recover from from the shock. Uh, and I think that that's what Russians keep doing in 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 this in these territories, and that they will continue to do. And uh, for them, it's quite successful. So unfortunately, I never be. I never turned kind of more optimistic than I used to be in the beginning. It's I uh, definitely I could not have predicted that that Ukrainian army would be so motivated and strong, and that the Western support will be quite uh, measured but co- uh, quite effective. I thought it would have been worse, but I still think that uh, violence that that Kremlin is willing to use violence. It has resources to use it, and it has the time. Uh, now it's it's a matter of who who's exhausted first, uh, and if it ever comes to the use of nuclear powers, who will blink first? Uh, that's that's it. So, but it's it's kind of not something I would speculate on now. It's there's been a lot of events that have made things. Much less predictable than they used to be, than they seemed like in in the first months. So I w- I would not go into this. I I just uh, I I'm just now expressing some some um, concerns that I still have and that I had in the beginning of this war, and they have not been dispelled. But I'm much less certain uh, about this negative uh, negative development. That's fair. I, I should remember as an American that uh, imperial powers are not rational. We were in Afghanistan for 20 years to, to no good purpose. So, Yeah. Well, <clears throat> it also didn't work out for us in the end. Um, though I suppose even the brutal Afghanistan occupation wasn't, doesn't really bear comparison to what Putin did in uh, like Chechnya uh, in the early 2000s. Um, I want to return to this question of Western support, but before that, um, I think it would be useful to have a little bit of background. Um, can you tell us about kind of the events of 2013 and 2014, where you had this, uh, you know, basically post-financial crisis, uh, economic, uh, problem in Ukraine, there, Ukraine and Ukrainian banks had a lot of foreign denominated debt. The EU and the IMF offered this completely pitiful loan. I think it was 610 million euros, uh, coupled to a requirement for like massive austerity. That was, it was just like, you know, what they were doing to Greece and Spain uh, at the time. And um, this uh, Putin at the same time offered a, a much larger loan, like billions. Um, and that pushed uh, Viktor Yanukovych towards Russia. And then there is a, uh, basically a revolution in 2014. So can you run through, through that for us? Mm-hmm. Like, like make any corrections or mm-hmm. addendums where necessary? Oh, that's kind of, yeah. The, the crude outline of that was, was definitely like this, that, uh, Ukraine, Russia and Belarus. So this, this kind of part of the post-Soviet world, there were, uh, uh, their economies suffered from long-term uh, stagnation. They haven't uh, regained uh, the growth rates, uh, the pre-crisis growth rates. Uh, and yeah, Ukraine's uh, 
you, 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 uh, Yanukovych government was looking for a quick fix on the quite conjunctural economic problems that, that the Ukrainian budget had uh, in, in 2013. He was looking forward to probably re-election soon. And yeah, he was kind of asking around for, uh, sorry, for financial help. And uh, in case of the EU, he was, he was essentially signing this association agreement in, in kind of under the incentive of this quick fix. And that association agreement was not exactly super beneficial for uh, Ukraine's economy. It's, uh, it, uh, it was not, uh, it was not fair uh, in, in some, um, it was not fair to Ukrainian domestic producers in some, uh, areas of economic, uh, economic life. And, uh, when you, when Putin offered him a larger loan, uh, yeah, Yanukovych and, and probably not just the carrot, but also a stick, uh, that Putin had because Yanukovych seems to be quite seemed to have looked quite scared after talking to Putin. I can't say that Yanukovych was extremely pro-Russian. He was rather promiscuous, so to say. He was opportunistic. Uh, so yeah, when Putin offered this kind of more beneficial package and uh, membership in, in uh, Russia-controlled uh, economic uh, union, uh, Yanukovych agreed, but uh, Ukraine's population was already uh, part of Ukraine's pro- Population which had pro-European sentiments, uh, uh, which was involved uh, in uh, the sectors of economy that benefited from uh, trading with the EU. Uh, those who were interested in uh, European labor market, yeah, they were against uh, the shift to Russia and they were behind the protests on Maidan. So. Uh, these protesters were essentially an economic and, and political reaction to this, to, to the, um, opportunism of, uh, of the Yanukovych government on, on geopolitically, but also to, to, uh, Yanukovych, to the internal politics of, of Yanukovych. You probably know that he was, uh, as many Ukrainian presidents, uh, before him, he was gradually strengthening his grip uh, over domestic uh, politics. So, yeah, that was briefly how it developed. And uh, after this uprising succeeded and Yanukovych fled, yeah, Russia used this occasion, uh, used this occasion of uh, interregnum in Ukraine to grab uh, Crimea and uh, to fuel the uh, conflict in Donbass, which back then looked much more like a civil war than uh, than like a, um, interstate war. But then its nature changed, obviously. Yeah. So you 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 had some you know domestic disputes, kind of the the EU, the IMF, the United States, kind of being jerks. You see sometimes the. Maidan revolution, right? It's what it's called in 2014 called like a U.S. backed coup. And that seems like very inaccurate. Like I think the U.S. provided some support, but it was like the domestic political stuff on the ground that was decisive, right? Yeah, definitely. That's not, uh, I don't know where the, this discourse of coup and this kind of conspirological stuff 
could have been maybe somehow useful in some corners of the post-Soviet world uh, for some events, but definitely not for such grand scale, uh, grand scale turning points like uh, Maidan in Ukraine or protests in Belarus in 2020 or protests in Armenia. Uh, this, uh, these were uh, protests of uh, genuine, genuinely popular protests. Uh, uh, these were cross, cross class uh, protests. Uh, they also were um, not, um, not geographically restricted, although geographically biased, so to say. Uh, there were not, um, there, there was a sort of political, um, political and financial infrastructure that was provided uh, for the protesters, but it was provided internally by the local businesses and local politicians rather than uh, by, by the EU, because it was also a protest of middle class, a protest of, uh, as some call it, protests of millionaires against billionaires. Uh, so protests of smaller businesses against uh, oligarchs. So definitely there was a lot of resources. And even if EU would have been, or, or I don't know, CAA would have been strongly against Maidan, I don't think they would have done that much. Uh, and to be honest, yeah. I, I'm not sure that, for example, Germany was super happy about it. Yeah, that's, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's, uh, destabilizing right like that's like right. people dislike <laughs> yeah well obviously th this war has been terrible for so many people because of the globalized nature of, of the economy and and so forth uh, i wanted to ask about misconceptions on the left from socialists especially um and and i know this is u.s centric to talk about u.s socialists but uh here you know our, our audience has been kind of exposed to i think some real misunderstandings and, um, and, and understandings and analysis of the situation that purport to be leftist and socialist, but I think get some, some things wrong. Uh, and so, for example, you would see not necessarily people taking the side of Russia, but either at the beginning, especially saying, uh, the U.S. and the West is, conflated with the Ukraine, essentially. And uh, if you're a socialist, you should be against uh, giving any support, uh, except maybe humanitarian aid. Um, certainly, you should be against helping arm the Ukrainian army. And this analysis comes from this idea that kind of the U.S. is the hegemonic power, the imperialist power that dictates everything. And you've written a bit about why this is both outdated and kind of takes away the autonomy and self-determination, both of the Ukrainian people and even of Putin and Russia. So maybe you could speak uh -huh. a little bit about those problems of analysis. Yeah, there from the is uh, this widespread discourse of uh, what is it called? Uh, proxy war, uh, that this is an yeah. inter-imperialist war. Mm. I mean, it's uh, for to me is it's a way uh, using these terms uh, is rather a way to avoid proper analysis of of what's happening, proper causal analysis and proper uh, materialist analysis of, of the events that are unfolding. Mm. 
because uh, if we live in, uh, in in an imperial in, in the world of empires and uh, probably capitalist world system can't exist otherwise then all conflicts are more or less determined by inter-imperialist struggle and all conflicts can be defined as, as proxy wars or somehow over-determined by uh, various imperialist powers. It was definitely the conflict in Syria was such 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 uh, such a conflict and uh, for example Kurds in Rojava uh, were definitely could definitely have been called proxies uh, now Armenia and Azerbaijan could be called proxies of uh, you know which powers and it's just uh, this sort of analysis is not helpful it's it's superfluous and kind of banal to 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 say that uh, uh, we live in uh, in in a world divided by the in, uh, divided by imperialist powers, and so we should uh, somehow treat uh, uh, somehow di- direct our action a- actions solely by opposing one of these powers. By what mm, on what how to define the our own power whom we should oppose? It's uh, it's the one that we influence the most, uh, I think. Uh, or I don't, I don't know what's this, the nature of defeatism. If if you live in a world of imperialist struggle, what's the nature of defeatism? Who should be defeated? Uh, you want usually socialists want the defeat of the imperial order as such. Uh, but if we look at the First World War and we look at the actual. Uh, record of anti-imperialist left, we would see that the famous Zimmerwald conference, uh, which was, uh, uh, which was uh, a forum of the left forces, uh, communist socialist forces that opposed all imperialist powers. They were in favor of national self-determination. So they were in favor of some of the wars that could have been treated back then as proxy wars, but still were considered anti-imperialist. So it's, if we look closely at that, stra- uh, at the history of socialist anti-war movements, if we look at how Friedrich Engels treated conflicts in the 19th century, himself being a former uh, army, army officer, he did not avoid taking sides if he thought that it was tactically that it was te- tactically a good choice uh, that it would benefit uh, progressive forces uh i to be honest in this situation in the war uh, in ukraine i don't want to say that i have a good answer uh for international left uh, I, I would just say that we need uh, we need to be more uh, uh we need to first analyze what's actually happening to establish causal uh, connections. And once we did it, uh, we need to look at uh, our own tactics, at the tactics of party building or, or movement development, and only then answer the question, why would we support these actions? For example, I don't know, banning support for for delivery of weapons to Ukraine. I don't see any particular reasons, any particular good um 
benefits for any leftists in in in, in Europe in, or in the US in or in making this question the delivery of weapons to Ukraine the centerpiece of their tactics now. Uh, it's simply because it's this war is is extremely unpredictable. You don't know what you will win and what you will lose by taking this strong position here, and uh, it's. According to my analysis now, uh, American hegemony is, is, is in decline, uh, and Russia's actions, they are not just opportunistic actions, but also, uh, an advance, an attack, and, 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 uh, an effort to establish its own domination and to undermine, uh, other hegemonic compacts. And I don't equal domination and hegemony. Domination is, is essentially about brute force. It's not about legitimacy, but it's about subordination. Whereas hegemony, uh, well, all hegemony is of course supported by force, by the threat of force or by use of force in, 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 in some situations. But hegemony is something that where force is suppressed. It's not, um, Mm, it's based on some sort of compact, uh, and it prevents people from just simply killing each other. What Russia tries to do is is undermine, uh, bring violence to the fore, uh, bring violence as the the only means of of changing the global order. So, I think the the very situation like this, the retreat of American hegemony and the return of violence as the kind of world-making mechanism is in itself extremely dangerous. The left is not prepared for it. The international left is too weak to 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 desire for the worst, uh, how to say, to, to, to desire the world to collapse. We are not ready for, for the demise of, of, of the world system right here and now. So I, I, I think the calls right. for... The worse, the better. Is not uh, is is not a good uh, a good way forward. Right. So the the challenging question now is how do we uh, as leftists support the people everywhere? Support democracy? Support self determination? Support workers? And and since you've studied this region, uh, the only counter arguments that that uh, I hear from the left seem to be echoing Russian propaganda about Nazis, uh, about the fact that Ukraine maybe isn't really um, self determined, democratic in nature. Because otherwise, leftists would would see a, a war of aggression against a self determining people as an infringement of our principles for democracy. Um, so, what do you say about kind of the, those? lines of propaganda. I mean, we've got Nazis in this country too, so I'm not saying there aren't Nazis in Ukraine, but what about these allegations that there isn't a, a true self-determined Ukrainian people that are being uh, aggressively well, dominated here? I can't say. Um, this is a very, very strange uh, dynamic that I noticed among the left. Uh, this sort of selective use of realism and realism and uh, moralism in, in, in approaching countries. So for some countries, you apply the strict criteria of realism. Okay. This country is strong and can damage us. So we should, uh, concede. For other countries, we apply moralistic rules. Okay. This country is bad. It's not up to our standards. We shouldn't support it. Uh, it's, I don't see any coherence here. And, uh, 
in this approach, I rather see this uh, something that should long have been overcome in, in, in the Marxist and uh, uh, socialist thought in general is the division of the world between historic and ahistoric nations. That some nations uh, must be dealt with as, as powers, as some kind of thing, uh, thing of reality of the real world. And some nations should be discarded with. They are, they are kind of not, not real. It's essentially what Putin's, uh, Putin's view of the world is. That there are sovereign nations. It's, it's Russia and US and China. And there are all others who are just, uh, um, just material, raw material for remaking of the world. So, uh, I'm, I see these claims that Ukraine is in some way kind of worse than others. And it shouldn't be supported. I would ask, so why? If I, I never, I don't remember. I mean, I was probably not uh, that smart back then when the U.S. started the war in Iraq. But I don't remember any anti-war activist saying that, look, Saddam is uh, is not worth. I mean, Iraqis are not worth. Uh, Iraqis deserve to be conquered by us. Okay, so there were some supposedly on the left that had this argument, but right. I don't right. think... Or, or get it over quickly, because there'll be less violence yeah. if, if you yeah. let the U.S. dominate and, more, and occupy more quickly. Yeah. That's that's the mm-hmm. socialist view. That's even better. I don't yeah. think that this... Uh, okay, Ukraine is not that much worse than Iraq was then. It's not a, it's not a great country at all. It's... Uh, it's a normal Eastern European country, which is not to say it's it's a good thing to, to be. Uh, it's it's a corrupt country. It's 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 nominally democratic, uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's society. It's civil society is very anarchic. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it has been dominated by large capital, the oligarchs, and so on. It's basically the story of every Eastern European country. But I wouldn't say that Latvia or Czechia or Romania, for that matter, deserves to be occupied and overrun by any other country because of that, or that occupation somehow miraculously helps mend these ills of development of this country, or that it promotes any progressive forces in this country. Definitely it does the opposite. I haven't noticed any kind of progressive developments in Iraq. Uh, okay, some, but generally not tremendously uplifting developments in Iraq after the U.S. occupation. The same can be said uh, about Afghanistan. It's not occupation is not something that you can just accept as 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 a fact of the world and just say we need to agree on this because. It will be worse if if they don't occupy. I mean, I don't know. I never understood this logic. It's kind of emotionally. I understand that that's how people in the U.S. may react because they see that their own country is implicated, and you have to resist your own government first. You can do it, and you should do it, of course. But maybe you shouldn't abuse argument, uh, abuse other countries' histories if you don't really know the details and you construct false arguments about the internal dynamics of other countries 
to serve your domestic goals, I don't think is, is, is the right strategy. I don't think it's in the spirit of internationalism. And I don't think it's that it's particularly useful for uh, domestic party building or movement building. Let's, let's talk a little <clears throat> more specifically about that causal stuff you were saying. Namely, what caused the war? You have this, you have a narrative in some precincts of the left that it basically it was the West's fault. That is, you have consistent NATO encroachment, um, which, you know, uh, asterisk was often demanded by those countries who joined sort of over the objections of, of the Americans and the Europeans who, who viewed it as dangerous sometimes or just a pain in the neck. Uh, versus, you know, a, a sort of broadly, uh, uh, you know, what Biden is saying, uh, what a lot of, unfortunately, neocons are saying, but also what Putin seems to be saying, which is that basically this is an imperialist war of aggression. Ukraine is a fake country um, and uh, I'm Peter the Great. And so, you know, I'm willing to countenance the idea that like the NATO actions sort of maybe help set the stage for this thing. But at the end of the day, you know, you have a decision by one guy. But what's your read on the situation? Um, in social sciences, uh, well, okay, in, in Marxism in general, in Marxism in particular, and in social sciences in general, there is no, uh, we can't approach causality in a mechanistic way. You can't say that there is one cause in a chain of historical events. You can go back in, in, in a time machine and change this cause and the outcome will be different. You can't do it retroactively too. I agree that, uh, the NATO expansion created the environment in which the Russian ruling class felt threatened. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, we can, uh, we can speculate. But once they decided to start a war, that, co that causality lost, lost its kind of long-term action. Now, whatever NATO does, whether it expands further or it shrinks, it can't stop the war. It can't stop uh, the determination of the Russian ruling elite to conquer these territories, to hold them, and to establish their own kind of domination in the in the area that they can, that they are determined to do it if if they have any plan at all. Uh, you have, I, I I am sure that they predicted that other countries would want to join NATO, and NATO would even further expand uh, after the start of this war. So. Even from the standpoint of the of, of this kind of idea that NATO is inherently threatening to Russia, this logic stopped working because after Finland and uh, Sweden uh, were set on track to joining NATO, it, it didn't change anything in in Russia's calculation. So NATO dynamic just stopped working, even if it was a cause in some chain of causality. Now it, it's not, it's not a significant uh, factor here. Uh, and if for historians, it's, it's a valid question and we can go back to, I don't know, uh, 1989 and, and, uh, go over discussions between 
Gorbachev and whoever uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, officials. Now it has only historical validity. Uh, starting launching of uh, launching a war of that scale launches a causality causal chain of its own, and uh, it's it's only uh, the one who makes the decision to launch a war. And uh, who is is supplying uh, who who is supplying weapons and men to this war? It's uh, it's the cause uh, which which needs to be taken into account. Uh, and uh, so that's why that's why I always call on on my left wing friends abroad to pay much more closer attention to the internal dynamic of Russian elite, internal dynamic of Russian uh, capitalism. To see where the internal causes for for the war and for the further development of the Russian West relations are, because because now external causes I think are purely secondary. How, well, on that point, sorry, sorry, I was just going to follow up on that specific point. What have you noticed in terms of analysis of the incentives uh, among? you know, the economic elites and, and the ways in which, you know, the narrative of kind of the czarist imperialist advance and, and so forth is meant to serve, I think, right, these material interests of the ruling class in Russia. What, what, what do you notice in the internal dynamics among the elites in Russia? Or what do you think um, you've learned uh, about that might help us understand where this is headed? I think I disagree think? with uh, with um, this slightly simplistic materialist explanation that a war of uh, imperialist war, a war of territorial expansion, should always serve immediate economic interests of the uh, of the ruling sure. class, or or even a particular faction of the ruling class. It is as and here I follow uh, the line of analysis of Ilya Matveyev, a Russian political economist and activist. So in his uh, in his talks and articles about Russian imperialism, he stresses that it's the political it's the political that gains the upper hand here and not the economic. Uh, that yeah. it's it's the ruling political elites. Hmm, who are quite narrow circle, uh, narrow circle of uh, of elites and their dependents, who uh, are able to constrain and and control the economic elites, the the oligarchs proper, the, uh, so they can be called uh, political capitalists rather. And uh, this this is the dynamic that is here that the war is about. Territory and politics, rather than capital immediate midterm goals of capital accumulation and uh, and strengthening of of the capitalist class in Russia. Capitalists are actually suffering. Uh, in uh, they probably await are are waiting for some long term games, very long term games, but they are not the immediate winners, as they, of course, the majority of the Russian population, uh, Russian uh, proletarians, uh, of course. So this dynamic is purely political as, as of now, and it can happen uh, in, in history. I don't, I don't think that, uh, that uh, materials, historical materialist view of, of the world history would 
would not find uh, such such examples when the political logic overtakes the purely economic calculations. Yeah, it seems to me well, that makes sense. You you could look at it through the other end of the telescope. Um, I think that you know capital is a lot more influential in the Western you know sort of empire you know national elites whatever you want to call them um and you know i think if you look be uh sort of read between the lines on biden's attempt to negotiate you know some sort of settlement before the invasion you know western capital wanted this war like they wanted a hole in the head you know that nobody wants a massive energy blockade for electricity prices in france and germany to increase by a, a tenfold um, and inflation to go up by like probably, you know, two or three more percentage points. Like this has been a very serious, uh, uh, crimp on, uh, profits, you know, across the board. Some people are making out like bandits, but a lot of businesses like in the UK and elsewhere are shutting down because they can't afford to keep the lights on. Yeah, definitely. I agree that it's one of these unique, uh, maybe not uh, rare or rather rare, episodes in history when the U.S. neither economically nor politically was interested in this war. I can't, I can't find any reason, uh, any any reason for Biden being, you know, excited about Putin started the war in Ukraine in this moment, uh, at this moment, at, at this conjuncture in, in, in economic development, at this conjuncture in, in the competition between China. I think uh, everyone lost... Uh, Europeans lost first, uh, the U.S. lost second, and I think well, Russia lost definitely as 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 a, as people, not not as as the elite. Uh, and China was is the only winner here. Uh, so in I I never uh, I have been never buying this argument that this war was somehow in the interest of of the U.S. or it uh, it was used by the U.S. somehow for some dark plan so i i think that's a wrong uh that, that's a wrong uh, argument i want to face the you know question of supply supplying arms to ukraine so uh the, it seems to me that if western arms have been decisive in terms of preventing a russian victory uh then that would be, you know, decisive in avoiding the sort of calamities that we've seen in uh, Bucha and now that we're seeing in Kharkiv. Uh, and so, therefore, it seems pretty inarguable to me that that, that like, the weapons should flow. Um, have have Western, um, you know, supplies of equipment and, and so forth, like, turned the tide, in your opinion? Mm, I think that, uh, that definitely... Preventing further encroachment of the Russian army, yeah, was due in a large part to the supply of weapons. Uh, in, in the first months, it was the anti-tank uh, anti missiles. And it was definitely a good thing because it prevented lots of deaths that could have been prevented because occupation, Russian occupation, well, any occupation in general leads to uh, huge loss of life. Secondly, with the arrival of anti-missile uh, weapons, it decreased, yeah, actually not only weapons, but also intelligence. Uh, 
uh, it decreased the uh, rate, um, the, the, the rate at which Russian missiles hits uh, the targets uh, in, in, in Ukraine cities and villages. Uh, yeah, and this also avoids, uh, prevents the loss of life. Uh, and this can be said about uh, a huge nomenclature of weapons. And I, yeah, so in, in this, in this sense, definitely, uh, you, when you call for an embargo of supplying weapons to Ukraine, you should consider costs too, uh, costs of, of doing that. I know you have to, to go soon, my friend. One last question, if you have time. Uh, and you can just use this to, to give your final thoughts. But uh, this is kind of a broad question. But is there anything you, you hope for um, with respect to the situation? And what would that look like? Whether it's how it resolves in the short, medium, long term, whether it's what we can learn from it as, as uh, uh, leftists. Um, what would you hope for? What, what, what is there to hope for here? I don't have any hopes here. I, I, my mood remains very sober, somber and sober here. Uh, I, the, the only hope for me is that, uh, well, there are some remnants of some kind of rationality in, in Kremlin or it, if it comes to worst in, uh, some other countries that will allow us to avoid the worst uh, so and and I think that so far it's it's not that that level of, of pure uh, idiocy that we would see like nuclear strikes uh, uh, tomorrow or, or, or in a year uh, so that's that's the only hope uh, otherwise this this will be a long war uh, it's it will not it will not be beneficial to anything to anyone it will be uh, yeah the, the second hope except for avoiding the nuclear war is that we will preserve some sort of remnants of left uh, progressive forces in ukraine and in russia and this is actually was has been something encouraging for me that they have been preserved and we even managed to sustain and strengthen cooperation between ukrainian and russian progressive forces uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I forgot to mention this, that there are some positive notes to that. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate uh, everything you for, you've said for, the for us. And... Yeah. You're, uh, you're welcome back anytime. Maybe we could have you in a few months for an update, see how things are going. Yeah. Uh, but, um, thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you in the next episode. Have a nice day. Bye.